Section 25 of The Flight of the Heron by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eileen. Part 5, Chapter 2. When Ewan came fully to himself again, it was night, the pale highland summer night. He could not guess the hour. He had not been discovered, then. He lay listening. There was no sound anywhere save the rushing of the river below him, nothing to tell him whether the troopers had returned or no. But now was undoubtedly the time to quit his lair and get back over the bridge and along the short but dangerous stretch of high road until he could leave it and make for the river Lochie. When he had forded Lochie and was on the other side of the great glen, he would be safer. Alas, the next few minutes implanted in him a horrible doubt whether he would ever ford Lochie, seeing that between the swimming head of exhaustion and the twist which he had given his damaged leg in throwing himself off the horse, he could scarcely even stand, much less walk. And although the people up at the change house, almost within call, were, unless they had been removed, of a Cameron sept, he dared not risk attracting their attention, for a double reason. Soldiers, his own escort, or others from Fort William, might very well halt there, and to shelter him would probably in any case be disastrous to the poor folk themselves. His prospects did not seem too bright. All his hope was that he might feel more vigorous after a little more of this not very comfortable rest. Huddled together on his side under the lee of the boulder to get what shelter he could from the soft, misty rain which he felt rather than saw, he said a prayer and fell into the sleep of the worn-out. He was wakened by a strange, sharp noise above him, and the sensation of something warm and damp passing over his face. Stiff and bewildered, he opened his eyes and saw in the now undoubted, though misty, daylight, the other of these two phenomena, an agitated sheepdog of a breed unknown to him. As he raised himself on an elbow, the dog gave another excited bark and immediately darted away up the tree-grown bank. So numbed and exhausted was the fugitive that it took him a few seconds to realize that he was discovered. But by whom? Not by soldiers, certainly, nor could that be the dog from the change house. He dragged himself into a sitting posture, got his back against the boulder, pulled the little black knife, his only resource, from his stocking, and waited. Feet were coming down the steep bank, and soon two men could be seen plunging through the birch and alder, shouting to each other in an unfamiliar accent. In front of them plunged and capered the sheepdog, with its tail held high, and Ewan heard a loud, hearty voice saying, A clever lass! Aye, a good bitch thou art indeed! I'll see ye. Yon's a rebel, Jan. He reflected. I can kill the dog, but what good would that do me? Moreover, I've no wish to and as the intelligent creature came bounding right up to him, wagging a friendly tail, and apparently proud of its accomplishment in having found him, he held out his left hand in invitation. The dog sniffed once, and then licked it. "'Oh, see then,' cried the former voice. "'Oh, dang it! See Lassie so friendly and all!' "'Yet you had best not come too near,' cried Ewan threateningly. "'I'm armed.' He raised his right hand. The larger of the men, pushing through an alder bush, instantly lifted a stout cudgel. If thou harms the bitch, come here, lassie. 
No, I will not harm her, said Ewan, fending off the dog's demonstrations with his other arm. But call her off. I owe her no gratitude. For finding thee, thou meanst, supplied Lassie's owner. Aye, that's the fellow that gave the soldiers the slip yesterday. We heard all about thee, up at the little house yonder. He, but thou art a great smart lad. And there was genuine admiration in his tone. And twas smart to hide thee here, so near and all, instead of going o'er the brig. Eh, hey, Jan? Oh, main smart, agreed the smaller man, and too smart for the redcoats I lay. The smart lad, very grim in the face, and rather grey to boot, sat there against his boulder with the Sigian clutched to his breast, and pointed outwards, and eyed the two men with a desperate attention, as they stood a little way higher up amid the tangle of bushes, stones, and protruding tree-roots, and looked at him. They had the appearance of well-to-do farmers, and particularly the larger, who was a tremendously burly and powerful man, with a good-tempered but masterful expression. The smaller was of a more reasoned type, and older. "'I'll see thee, young man,' said the burly stranger suddenly. "'Tis no manner of use to deny that thou art one of those danged highland rebels, seeing we've heard all the tale up yonder.' Ewan's breath came quickly. But I'll not be retaken without resistance. Oh, who says we be going to take thee? No happen with somewhat else to mind. Come here, lassie, wilt thou? And do not be so friendly to a chap with a knife in his hand. Oh, I tell you, the dog has nothing to fear from me, repeated Ewan. And see then. And on a sudden impulse, he planted the Sagean in the damp soil beside him and left it sticking there. Oh, that's sweet, young man. "'That's Janek!' exclaimed the large stranger, in evident approval and relief. "'Oh, happen we can have some clack together now. "'How dost thou reckon to get away from this Todd's den of thine?' "'Here, suddenly, the little man began to giggle. <laughs> "'It makes me laugh to think of it. "'Soldiers chasing Reed away o'er the brig, and Lord knows where beyond. "'And they never come back, so the folk up yonder tells. "'Aye, a good tale to tell when we get back o'er Tyne, agreed the large man, shaking gently with a more subdued mirth. And as Ewan, for his part, realized that the reference to Tyne must mean that the strangers were English, and that we could not imagine what they were doing in Lochabe, this large one burst into a great rumbling upheaval of laughter, causing the sheepdog to bark in sympathy. A quiet lass commanded her master, making a grab at her. Thy new friend here has no wish for thy noise, I lay. He looked straight at the fugitive sitting there. "'Hadn't thee best get thee gone, lad, before tis any lighter?' he asked. Was the man playing with him, or was he genuinely friendly? Ewan's heart gave a great bound. A momentary mist passed before his eyes. When it cleared, the large man was stooping over him, a bottle in his hand. "'Thou art night clammed, lad, or my name's not Robert Fosdyke. Here's the stuff for thee. Read nods. Take a good sup of it. The fiery spirit ran like lightning through Ewan's cramped limbs. Why? Why do you treat me so kindly? he gasped, half stupid, between the brandy and astonishment, as he returned the bottle. You are English, are you not? Why do you not give me up? Mr. Fosdyke, who had now seated himself on a large stone near, struck his knee with some vehemence. Oh, I'll tell thee why. First, because the bitch here found thee and took to thee, and thou did not stick your knife or thine into her. 
but I'd have driven in thy skull if thou hadst. Oh, second, because thou'rt a sharp lad, and a bold one, too. And last, because I've seen and heard tell of things yonder, at Fort Augustus, where we went to buy cattle, that I haven't liked at all. No, I didn't like what I heard of goings-on. Aye, and fourthly, the cattle was worth dang little when we'd gotten them. All the best were sold already. You knew what cattle they would be, the one possession of many a poor highland home, as well as the herds of the gentry. He remembered now, having heard that some of the many thousands collected from Lochaber and Badenoch were sold to English and lowland dealers. Apparently, then, these men were on their way south through Glencoe and Brad Albain with such as they had bought, and now he knew why once or twice during this conversation he had fancied that he heard sounds of lowing at no great distance. "'I wonder if mine are all gone,' he said, half to himself. "'How thou cattle of thy own, lad?' inquired Mr. Fosdyke. "'If thou canst see any of thine among ours up there, thou shalt have them back again. That's none so generous as thou mightst think, for there's some I'd as soon give away as drive all the way o'er the border.' Ewan gave a weak laugh. "'What should I do with cattle now? I cannot get home myself, much less drive cattle there.' "'And why canst thou not get home, when thou put some in thy belly?' asked the Yorkshire man. Ewan told him why he should find it difficult, if not impossible, and why he dared not go to the change-house, either. The farmer pronounced that he was right in the latter course, and then made the astonishing suggestion that Jan Prescott here should run up to the house and bring the fugitive something to eat and drink. "'Do not say who tis for, Jan, and say I have a mind to eat by the river, if thou likes.' and while Jan, with amazing docility, removed the birch twig which he had been twisting between his lips, and betook himself up the bank, his companion questioned Ewan further as to the direction of his home. The other side of the other river. The other river's no but a couple of miles away. I'll tell thee what, lad, he exclaimed, slapping himself once more. I'll take thee as far as the river on one of the nags. Happen thou canst sit a horse still. I'll take me there. Ewan could only stare in amazement. Aye, and when thou'st gotten to this river of thine, how must thou cross it? Happen there's a brig, a ferry. No, there's a ford. The ford by which we all... His voice died away. How long ago it seemed, that elated crossing last August, after Glenfinnan. And when thou'rt on the other side, pursued Mr. Fosdyke, how I'll reach my home somehow, if I have to crawl there. And who'd thou find there, and thy parents? My aunt, who brought me up. My parents are dead. And no wife, no children? My wife is in France. And why, he added, we were only married two days before parting. Ewan did not know. Poor lad, said Mr. Fosdyke. Why didst thou stop at home, like a wise man? Ewan, his head resting against the boulder, said, That I could not do. His eyes meanwhile fixed on the form of Mr. Jan Prescott, already descending the slope with a tankard in his hand and two large bannocks clasped to his person. Mr. Fosdyke turned and hailed him, and in another moment Ewan had started upon the bannocks, finding that he was famished, having tasted nothing solid since the halt at Lagan yesterday morning. And while he ate, Mr. Robert Fosdyke unfolded his intention to his companion, 
who raised no objection except a remark. Happen thou'lt meet redcoats on the road. How oh, I shall say lad is a drover of mine, then. In yon petticoat thing, queried Mr. Prescott, pointing at Ewan's kilt. Oh, he shall have thy greatcoat to cover him up. Oh, I don't know how he'll get into it, then, returned Mr. Prescott. I'll see you, Robert. I'd sooner he had a horse blanket than split my coat. Oh, he can have loan of my coat, then, said Mr. Fosdyke. He'll not split that. Beasts are read up there, he inquired. As read as they'll ever be, returned his partner with gloom. I notice we paid too much for him, growled Mr. Fosdyke in a voice like subterranean thunder. The government notice says. Well, never mind what, but twere main different from what the cattle were like. However, I weren't coming all the way from the other side of York for naught. York? asked Ewan, with his mouth full, since this information seemed addressed to him. You come from York, sir, for nearby. Dost thou know the town? No, said Ewan. The soldiers were not taken there yesterday. It was Carlyle that I was going to in the end. Ah, said Mr. Fosdyke, comprehendingly. But some poor devils are setting out for York, too, we hear. Thou's best come along with us. And giving his great laugh, he began to embroider his pleasantry. And thou dost not like the notion. Oh, why not? York's a fine town, I can tell thee, and more gates to it for setting rebels' heads on than Carlisle. I lay we have a row of them, or Micklegate Bar come Christmas. Thou's not wishful to add thine. Ewan shook the imperiled head in question with a smile. No, agreed Mr. Fosdyke, best keep it to lay on the pillow beside thy wife's. If she's in France, then thou'rt not a poor man, eh? Oh, I'm what you call a gentleman, replied Ewan, and though I expect that I'm poor enough now. If thou'rt a gentleman, pronounced Mr. Fosdyke, and thou dost right to keep away from York and Carlisle, and from London, too. Now, Jan, we'll gan and see about the nags. Thou mayst bide here, lad. Come on, lassie. With tramplings and cracklings they were gone, dog and all, and but for the yet unfinished food and drink, which were putting new life into Ewan, the whole encounter might have been a dream. As he waited there for their return, he wondered whether Alison's prayers had sent these good angels, which, to his simple and straightforward faith, seemed quite likely. And presently the larger of the angels came back, and helped him along the slope to the scene of his exploit at the bridge. Here was a satellite Jan with two stout nags, a flea-bit and grey and a black. A long and ample coat, certainly not Mr. Prescott's, was provided for the Jacobite. If thou art clothed like a Christian, and there'd have been no need for this, said Mr. Fosdyke with frankness as he helped him into it. And then, the difficulty of getting into the saddle surmounted, Ewan found himself half incredulously riding behind the broad back of his benefactor over the brawling spian, in his hand a stout cattle goat to assist his steps when he should be on his feet again. In the two miles before they came to the river Lochy, they had the luck to meet no one. There the clouds hung so low that the other side of the great glen was scarcely visible. When they came to the ford, Ewan pulled up and made to dismount. But Mr. Fosdyke caught him by the arm. Oh, nay, if thou canst scarce walk on land, I doubt they'll walk through water. And Daisy will take the oar. Come, Mare. 
the two horses splashed placidly through in the mist. On the other side, Ewan struggled off and got out of the coat. "'I cannot possibly recompense you, Mr. Fosdyke,' he began, handing it up to him. "'If thou offer me money,' said Mr. Fosdyke threateningly, "'how danged if I don't take thee back to where I found thee!' "'Now you can be reassured,' said Ewan, smiling, "'for I have none. "'But, in any case, money does not pass between gentlemen for a service like this. "'I only pray God that you will not suffer for it. "'Now I'd like to see the man that's going to make me,' was the Yorkshire man's reply. "'And I feel now, as I've got even with government in the matter of the cattle,' he added, with immense satisfaction. "'And thou thinks me a gentleman. "'Well, I'm no but a farmer, but I'm much obliged to thee for the compliment.' He shook Ewan's hand. "'Oh, good luck to thee, my lad. "'If thou lived a few hundred miles nearer, "'and danged if I would not give thee a pup of lassies, "'but thou'rt o'er far away, o'er far.' He chuckled caught the bridle of the grey, and the eight hoofs could be heard splashing back through the ford. Then silence settled down again, silence and the soft folds of mist, and after a moment Ewan, leaning heavily on his goad, began his difficult pilgrimage. Twenty-four hours later, very nearly at the end of his tether, he was hobbling slowly along the last mile of that distance which ordinarily he could have covered between one meal and the next. So slow and painful had been his progress, and with such frequent halts, that it had been late afternoon before he reached Loch Arkeg, and there he had seen the pitiful charred remains left by vengeance of Lochiel's house of Achnacheri, almost as dear to him as his own. In that neighborhood, above all others, he had feared to come on soldiers, but the Campbells and government pay who had burnt and ravaged here had long ago done their work, and the place was deserted. There was nothing to guard now, and none against whom to hold it. A poor Cameron woman, whose husband had been shot in cold blood as he was working in his little field, had given you in shelter. She told him what he expected to hear, that the house of Ardroy had been burnt down by a detachment of redcoats. This she knew because the soldiers had returned that way, and she had heard them boasting how they had left the place in flames. Of Miss Cameron's fate she knew nothing, but then she never saw anyone now that her man was gone. The burnt countryside was nearly depopulated. That Ewan had seen for himself already. And she said with tears, as, thanking her from his soul for her hospitality, he turned away from her door in the morning grey. Oh, Marquis Kellyn, for the chief and the chief's kin I'd give the last rag the last mouthful that's left to me, but I'm asking God why he ever let Prince Tierlach come to Scotland. And Ewan had no heart to find an answer. Against his will, the question had haunted him as he hobbled on. Just a year ago, he had had the news of that coming. Yes, just a year ago, he had sat with Alison by the loch and been happy. Too happy, perhaps. So his father's house was gone. But all the more was his mind set to reach Ardroy, to find out what had befallen those who had remained behind there. Aunt Margaret first and foremost, the servants, old Angus and his grandchildren, the womenfolk, the fugitives from Drumossi Moor. And here at last he was, going incredibly slowly, and accompanied by a dull pain in the thigh, which by this time seemed an inseparable part of himself. But come to the spot where, after crossing the Altbuye Burn, 
one used to discern the chimneys of the house of Ardroy between the pines of the avenue. Since he knew that he would never see them thus again, Ewan did not look up, but he thought, as he crossed the burn on the stepping stones, nearly overbalancing from fatigue, that one thing, at least, would be the same, for not even Cumberland could set fire to Loch Nahollere. Then, unable for the moment to get farther, he sank down among the welcoming heather for a rest. That, just coming into bloom, was unchanged. Thou art the same, and thy year shall not fail. The words floated into his head and out again, as he felt its springy resistance give beneath his body. Then, half lying there, twisting a tuft round and round the fingers of one hand, for the pleasure of feeling it again, you will let his eyes stray to the spot where his father's house and his had stood. And so strong were habit and memory that he could see its roof and chimney still. He put a hand over his eyes to rub away the false sight. But when he removed it, the chimneys were still there, and from one there floated a wisp of smoke. Trembling, he dragged himself clumsily to his feet. Like a man who dreams the impossible, he stood a little later outside the entrance door of Ardroy. The whole affair was like a dream, for fire had certainly passed upon the house, and yet it was unharmed. The lintel, the sides of the stone porch, were blackened with smoke. The ivy was brown and shriveled, but not even the woodwork was injured. The house seemed occupied. The door stood open, as on fine days it was wont to do, but there was not a creature about. Where was Aunt Margaret? Slowly, Ewan went over the threshold, feeling the stone and wood like a blind man to make sure that it was real. He could have kissed it, his house that was not burnt after all. The sun was pouring into the long room. There was a meal laid on the table. For Aunt Margaret? Then where was she? The place was very silent. Perhaps a horrible notion. Strangers held Ardroy now, enemies. He would rather it were burnt. But had harm befallen Aunt Margaret? He must find her. Shame on him to be thinking first of the house. He was giddy with hunger and fatigue, but he had no thought of approaching the table. He left the room and, holding very tightly by the rail, went up the stairs. The door of Miss Cameron's room was a little ajar, so he pushed it gently open, too confused to knock. Where? Where was she? And he stood in the doorway rooted, because, so unexpectedly, everything in that neat sunny room which he had known from a child was just as he had always known it, even to Aunt Margaret herself, sitting there by the window reading a chapter in her big Bible, as she always did before breakfast. The surprise of its usualness after his experiences and his fears almost stunned him, and he remained there motionless, propping himself by the doorpost. It was odd, however, that Aunt Margaret had not heard him, for she had not used to be deaf. The thought came to Ewan that he was perhaps become a ghost without knowing it, and he seriously considered the idea for a second or two. And then he took a cautious step forward. Aunt Margaret. Oh, he was not a ghost, she heard and looked up. It was true that her face was almost frightened. I've come back, said Ewan baldly. May I, may I sit on your bed? He crashed onto it rather than sat upon it, hitting his head against the post at the bottom, since all at once he could not see very well. But Aunt Margaret did not scold him. In fact, he perceived, after a little, that she was crying as she sat beside him, and attempting, as if he were a child again, to kiss his head where he had struck it. 
Oh, you and my boy, my darling, darling boy. Then did that poor woman dream that the house was burnt down? Asked you in some quarter of an hour later, gazing at Miss Cameron in perplexity as she planted before him, ensconced as he was in the easy chair in her bedroom, the last components of a large repast. For allow him to descend and eat downstairs, she would not. Indeed, after the first questions and emotions were over, she was for hustling him up to the attics and hiding him there. But Ewan, having announced with great firmness that he was too lame to climb a stair that was little better than a ladder, she compromised on her bedchamber for the moment, and with Marsali's assistance, brought up thither the first really satisfying meal, which Ewan had seen for more than three months. In answer to his question, she now began to laugh, though her eyes were still moist. <laughs> the house was set fire to, in a way. Eat, Eowan, for you look starving, and you shall hear the tale of its escape. Ewan obeyed her and was told the story. But not yet having, so it seemed to him, the full use of his faculties, he was not quite clear how much of the house's immunity was due to chance, to connivance on the part of the officer commanding the detachment sent to burn it, and to the blandishments of Miss Cameron herself. At any rate, after searching, though not plundering, the house of Ardry from top to bottom, for whom or what was not quite clear to Ewan, since at that date he was safely a prisoner at Fort Augustus, firing about half the crofts near, collecting what cattle they could lay their hands on, the most having already been sent up into the folds of the mountains, and slaying a dozen or so of Miss Cameron's hens, they had piled wood against the front of the house, with what intention was obvious. It was a moment of great anguish for Miss Cameron. But the soldiers were almost ready to march ere the fuel was lighted. And as they were setting fire to the pine branches and the green ash boughs, the officer approached her and said in a low voice, Madam, I have carried out my instructions, and it is not my fault if this wood is damp. Now that's enough, Sergeant. It will burn finely. Column, march. Directly they were out of sight, Miss Cameron and Marsali, the younger maidservants and the old gardener, seizing rakes and brooms and fire irons, had pulled away the thickly smoking but as yet harmless branches. And then I bethought me, Ewan, that twould be proper there should be as much smoke as possible to convince the world, and especially the redcoats, should they take a look back. A house cannot burn, even in a spot so remote as this, without there being some evidence of it in the air. So we made a great pile of all that stuff at a safe distance from the house. And my grief, the trouble it was to get it to burn. Most of the day we tended it, and a nasty thick reek it made, and a blaze in the end. That's how the house was burnt. What ails you, my bairn? But this time Ewan was able hastily to dash the back of his hand over his eyes. He could face her, therefore, unashamed, and reaching out for her hand, put his lips to it in silence. End of section 25